Section 16 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 12, American Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Abraham Lincoln, Part 2. As has been shown in previous chapters, the great slavery agitation of 1850, when the whole country was convulsed by discussions and ominous threats of disunion, was laid at rest for a while by the celebrated compromise bill which henry clay succeeded in passing through congress by the terms of this compromise california was admitted to the union as a free state the territories of new mexico and utah were organized to come in as states with or without slavery as their people might determine when the time should arrive the domestic slave trade in the district of columbia was abolished a more stringent fugitive slave law was passed and for the adjustment of state boundaries which reduced the positive slave area in texas and threw it into the debatable territory of new mexico texas received ten millions of dollars although this adjustment was not entirely satisfactory to either the north or the south the nation settled itself for a period of quiet to repair the waste and utilize the conquests of the mexican war it became absorbed in the expansion of its commerce the development of its manufactures and the growth of its immigration all quickened by the richness of its marvelous new gold fields until unexpectedly and suddenly it found itself once again plunged into political controversy more distracting and more ominous than the worst it had yet experienced for while calmly accepting the diverse political arrangements made for distant states and territories the men of the north who had fumed and argued against the passage of the fugitive slave law when its enforcement was attempted in their very presence, were altogether outraged. When the man-hunters chased and caught Negroes in their village marketplaces and city streets, when free men were summoned to obey that law by helping to seize trembling fugitives and send them back to worse than death, then they burst forth in a fierce storm of rage that could not be quieted. The agitation rose and spread, lecturers thundered, newspapers denounced, great meetings were held, politicians trembled and even yet the conservatism of the north was not wholly inflamed for political partisanship is in itself a kind of slavery and while the northern democrats stood squarely with the south the northern whigs fearing division and defeat made strenuous efforts to stand on both sides and admitting slavery to be an evil to uphold the fugitive slave law because it was a part of the great compromise in congress and out in national conventions and with all the power of the party press this view was strenuously advocated but in eighteen fifty two the democrats elected franklin pierce as president while the compromising whigs were cast out webster the leader of the compromisers had not even secured a nomination but general scott was the whig candidate while william h seward at the head of the anti-slavery whigs had at least the satisfaction of seeing that amid the dissolving elements of the whig party the anti-slavery sentiment was gaining strength day by day the old issues of tariffs and internal improvements were losing their vitality while freedom and slavery were the new poles about which new crystallizations were beginning to form but the compromise of eighteen fifty had loosed from its pandora's box another fomenter of trouble in the idea of leaving to the people of the territories the settlement of whether their incoming states should be slave or free the doctrine of popular sovereignty as it was called the nation had accepted that theory as a makeshift for the emergency of that day but slave cultivation had already exhausted much of the southern land 
and not content with utah and new mexico for their propagandism the slaveholders cast envious eyes upon the great territory of the northwest stretching out from the missouri border although it was north of the prohibited line of thirty six degrees thirty minutes and so it came about that within four short years after the compromise of eighteen fifty the unrest of the north under the fugitive slave law followed by the efforts of the south to break down the earlier compromise of eighteen twenty one awoke again with renewed fierceness to the slavery agitation in discussing the bill for the organization of the territories of kansas and nebraska an immense area extending from the borders of missouri iowa and minnesota west to the rocky mountains and from the line of thirty six degrees thirty minutes north to british america the mover of the kansas nebraska bill stephen a douglas senator from illinois a democrat and a man of remarkable abilities now came into prominent notice he wanted to be president of the united states and his popularity his legal attainments his congressional services his attractive eloquence and skill in debate marked him out as the rising man of his party he was a vermonter by birth and like lincoln had arisen from nothing a self-made man so talented that the people called him the little giant but nevertheless inferior to the giants who had led the senate for twenty years while equal to them in ambition and superior as a wire-pulling politician he was among those who at first supposed that the missouri compromise of eighteen twenty one was a final settlement and was hostile to the further agitation of the slavery question he was a great believer in american destiny and the absorption of all north america in one grand confederation in certain portions of which slavery should be tolerated as chairman of the senate committee on territories he had great influence in opening new routes of travel and favored the extension of white settlements even in territory which had been given to the indians to further his ambitious aspirations douglas began now to court the favor of southern leaders and introduced his famous kansas nebraska bill which was virtually the repeal of the missouri compromise inasmuch as it opened the vast territories to the north of thirty six degrees thirty minutes to the introduction of slavery if their people should so elect this the south needed to secure what they called the balance of power but what was really the preponderance of the slave states or at least the curtailment of the political power of the free states in eighteen fifty four during the administration of franklin pierce and under the domination of the democratic party which played into the hands of the southern leaders the compromise which clay had effected in eighteen twenty one was repealed under the influence of his compromise of eighteen fifty and the slavery question was thus reopened for political discussion in every state of the union showing how dangerous it is to compromise principle in shaping a policy popular indignation at the north knew no bounds at this new retrograde movement the whigs under protests while the free soil party just coming into notice composed mainly of moderate anti-slavery men from both the old parties were loud in their denunciations of the encroachments of the south even some leading democrats opened their eyes and joined the rising party the newspapers the pulpits and the platforms set forth a united cry of wrath the whigs and the abolitionists were plainly approaching each other the year eighteen fifty four saw a continuous and solid political campaign to repress the further spread of slavery the territories being then thrown open there now began an intense emulation to people them on the one hand with advocates of slavery on the other with free soilers emigration societies were founded to assist bona fide settlers and a great tide of families poured into kansas from the northern states while the southern states and chiefly missouri also sent large numbers of men at the south the repeal of the missouri compromise was universally welcomed and the southern leaders felt encouragement and exultation 
the South had gained a great victory, aided by Northern Democrats, and boldly denounced Chase, Hale, Sumner, Seward, and Giddings in the Congress as incendiaries, plotting to destroy precious rights. A memorable contest took place in the House of Representatives to prevent the election of Banks of Massachusetts as Speaker. But the tide was beginning to turn, and Banks, by a vote of 113 to 104, obtained the Speakership. Then followed border ruffianism in Kansas, when armed invaders from Missouri, casting thousands of illegal votes, elected, by fraud and violence, a legislature favorable to slavery, accompanied with civil war, in which the most disgraceful outrages were perpetrated, the central government at Washington being blind and deaf and dumb to it all. The bona fide settlers in Kansas, who were opposed to slavery, then assembled at Topeka, refused to recognize the bogus laws, and framed a constitution which President Pierce, a northern man with southern principles, gentlemanly and cultivated, but not strong, pronounced to be revolutionary. Nor was ruffianism confined to Kansas. In 1856, Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, one of the most eloquent and forceful denunciators of all the pro-slavery lawlessness, was attacked at his desk in the Senate chamber after an adjournment and unmercifully beaten with a heavy cane by Preston Brooks, a member of the House of Representatives and nephew of Senator Butler of South Carolina. It took years for Sumner to recover, while the aristocratic ruffian was unmolested and went unpunished. For, though censured by the House and compelled to resign his seat, he was immediately re-elected by his constituents. But this was not all. In that same year, the Supreme Court came to the aid of the South, already supported by the Executive and the Senate. Six judges out of nine, headed by Chief Justice Taney, pronounced judgment that slaves, whether fugitive or taken by their masters into the free states, should be returned to their owners. This celebrated case arose in Missouri, where a Negro named Dred Scott, who had been taken by his master to states where slavery was prohibited by law, who had, with his master's consent, married and had children in the free states, and been brought back to Missouri, sued for his freedom. The local court granted it, the highest court of the state reversed the decision, and on appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States, the case was twice argued there, and excited a wide and deep interest. The court might have simply sent it back as a matter belonging to the state court to decide, but it permitted itself to argue the question throughout, and pronounced on the natural inferiority of the Negro, and his legal condition as property, the competence of the state courts to decide his freedom or slavery, and the right of slaveholders under the Constitution to control their property in the free states or territories, any legislation by Congress or local legislatures to the contrary notwithstanding. This was the climax of slavery triumphs. The North and West, at last aroused, declared in conventions and legislative halls that slavery should advance no further. The conflict now indeed became irrepressible. At this crisis, Abraham Lincoln stepped upon the political stage and his great career began. As a local lawyer, even as a local politician, his work was practically done. He came forth as an avowed antagonist of Douglas, who was the strongest man in Illinois and the leader of the Democratic Party in Congress. He came forth as the champion of the anti-slavery cause in his native state, and soon attracted the eyes of the whole nation. His memorable controversy with Douglas was the turning point of his life. He became a statesman as well as a patriot, broad, lofty, and indignant at wrongs. Theretofore, he had been a conservative Whig, a devoted follower of Clay. But as soon as the Missouri Compromise was repealed, he put forth his noblest energies in behalf of justice, of right, and of humanity. 
As he was driving one day from a little town in which court had been held, a brother lawyer said to him, Lincoln, the time is coming when we shall be either abolitionists or Democrats. To which he replied musingly, When that time comes, my mind is made up, for I believe the slavery question can never be successfully compromised. And when his mind was made up, after earnest deliberation, he rarely changed it, and became as firm as a rock. His convictions were exceedingly strong, and few influences could shake them. That quiet conversation in his buggy, in a retired road with a brother lawyer, was a political baptism. He had taken his stand on one side of a great question which would rend in twain the whole country, and make a mighty conflagration, out of whose fires the truth should come victorious. The Whig Party was now politically dead, and the Republican Party arose, composed of conscientious and independent-minded men from all the old organizations, not afraid to put principle before party, conservative and law-abiding, yet deeply aroused on the great issue of the day and united against the further extension of slavery, organizing with great enthusiasm for a first presidential campaign in 1856 under Fremont, the Pathfinder, as their candidate. They were defeated, and James Buchanan, the Democratic candidate, became president, but accepting defeat as a lesson toward victory, they grew stronger and stronger every day, until at last they swept the country and secured the principal non-extension of slavery, complete representation in the national government. Lincoln, who was in 1857 the Republican candidate for United States Senator from Illinois, while Douglas sought the votes of the democracy, first entered the lists against his rival at Springfield in a speech attacking that wily politician's position as to the Dred Scott decision. He tried to force Douglas to a declaration of the logical consequence of his position, namely, that while he upheld the decision as a wise interpretation of the rights of the slave owners to hold slaves in the territories, yet the people of a territory, under the great principle of popular sovereignty, which was Douglas's chief stock in trade, could exclude slavery from its limits even before it had formed a state constitution. If we succeed in bringing him to this point, he wrote a friend, he will say that slavery cannot actually exist in the territories unless the people desire it, which will offend the South. If Douglas did not answer Lincoln's question, he would jeopardize his election as senator. If he did answer, he would offend the South, for his doctrine of squatter sovereignty conflicted not only with the interests of slavery, but with his defense of the Dred Scott decision a fact which Lincoln was not slow to point out. Douglas did answer, and the result was as Lincoln predicted. The position taken by Lincoln himself in the debate was bold and clear. Said he, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure half slave and half free. Either the opponents of slavery will avert the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. When his friends objected that this kind of talk would defeat him for senatorship, he replied, But it is true. I would rather be defeated with these expressions in my speech held up and discussed before the people than be victorious without it. He was defeated, but the debates made his fame national and resulted in his being president while the politic Douglas gained the senatorship and lost the greater prize. In these famous debates between the leaders, Lincoln proved himself quite the equal of his antagonist, who was already famous as a trained and prompt debater. Lincoln canvassed the state. He made in one campaign as many as 50 speeches. It is impossible within my narrow limits to go into the details of those great debates. 
in them, Lincoln rose above all technicalities and sophistries, and not only planted himself on eternal right, but showed marvelous political wisdom. The keynote of all his utterances was that a house divided against itself could not stand. Yet he did not pass beyond the constitutional limit in his argument. He admitted on the right of the South to a fugitive slave law, and the right of a territory to enact slavery for itself on becoming a state. He favored abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia only on the request of its inhabitants, and would forward the colonization of the Negroes in Liberia if they wished it and their masters consented. He was a pronounced anti-slavery man, but not an abolitionist, and took with the great mass of the Northerners a firm stand against the extension of slavery. It was this intuitive perception of the common sense of the situation that made him and kept him the remarkable representative of the Northern people that he was to the very end. Lincoln gained so much fame from his contest with Douglas that he was, during the spring of the following year, invited to speak in the eastern states. And in the great hall of the Cooper Institute in New York, in February 1860, he addressed a magnificent audience presided over by Bryant, the poet. He had made elaborate preparation for this speech, which was a careful review of the slavery question from the foundation of the Republic to that time, and a masterly analysis of the relative positions of political parties to it. The address made a deep impression. The speaker was simply introduced as a distinguished politician from the West. The speech was a surprise to those who were familiar with Western oratory. There was no attempt at rhetoric, but the address was pure logic from beginning to end, like an argument before the Supreme Court, and exceedingly forcible. The chief point made was the political necessity of excluding slavery from the territories. The orator did not dwell on slavery as a crime, but as a wrong which had been gradually forced upon the nation, the remedy for which was not in violent denunciations. He did not abuse the South. He simply pleaded for harmony in the Republican ranks and avoid giving offense to extreme partisans on any side, contending that if slavery could be excluded from the territories, it would gradually become extinct, as both unprofitable and unjust. He would tolerate slavery within its presence limits and even return fugitive slaves to their owners according to the laws, but would not extend the evil where it did not at present exist. As it was a wrong, it must not be perpetuated. The moderation of this speech, coming from an Illinois politician, did much to draw attention to him as a possible future candidate for the presidency, to which by this time he undoubtedly aspired. And why not? He was the leader of his party in Illinois, a great speechmaker who had defeated Douglas himself in debate, a shrewd, cool, far-sighted man looking to the future rather than the present, and political friends had already gathered about him as a strong political factor. Mr. Lincoln, after his great speech in New York, returned to his home. He had a few years before given some political speeches in Boston and the adjacent towns, which were well received, but made no deep impression, from no fault of his, but simply because he had not the right material to work upon, where culture was more in demand than vigor of intellect. Indeed, one result of the election of Lincoln and of the war which followed was to open the eyes of Eastern people to the intellect and intelligence of the West. Western lawyers and politicians might not have the culture of Sumner, the polished elocution of Everett, the urbanity of Van Buren, and the courtly manners of Winthrop, but they had brain power, a faculty for speech-making, and great political sagacity. And they were generally more in sympathy with the people, having mostly sprung from their ranks. Their hard and rugged intellects told on the floor of Congress, where everyone is soon judged according to his merits and not according to his clothes. And the East saw that thereafter political power would center in the West and dominate the whole country, against which it was useless to complain or rebel, 
since, according to all political axioms, the majority will rule and ought to rule. And the more the East saw of the leading men of the West, the more it respected their force of mind, their broad and comprehensive views, and their fitness for high place under the government. End of section 16